In the fall of 1997, Michael Vick, born and raised in Newport News, Virginia, was not the number one ranked quarterback recruit in the country. He was not the number one quarterback recruit in Virginia. He wasn't even the most sought-after quarterback in the Tidewater. The number one player on each of those lists was the same guy, a phenom named Ronald Curry, who was as desirable a point guard as he was a quarterback. And he was a really good quarterback. Curry either scored or passed for 186 touchdowns, and he led his high school to three state championships. Curry was the National Player of the Year in basketball. I mean, football may not have even been his best sport. As you can imagine, Curry attracted recruiters from across the country and in both sports. The powers of the mid-1990s all wanted him. Football coaching legend Bobby Bowden of Florida State called him the greatest prospect he had ever seen. Curry was, according to Virginia Tech head coach Frank Beamer, a four-play guy. That's what Beamer called the best of the best recruits. If you watched video of a player like Curry, you needed only four plays to tell you this guy was worth a scholarship. Four-play guys didn't come along very often, maybe once a year. Curry nearly signed with Virginia, but ultimately signed with North Carolina. He never gave Virginia Tech a look. But Frank Beamer never thought twice about it. All along, he had his eyes on another homegrown quarterback, one who played in Curry's backyard, a player named Mike Vick. If Curry was a four-play guy, Beamer figured Vick was a three-play guy. Beamer didn't tell many people he thought Vick was better than Curry. He didn't want to draw attention to Vick. But Beamer did tell his son Shane, then a long snapper on his dad's team, Shane, well, Shane thought his dad had been dipping into the cooking sherry. It was maybe just trying to make himself feel better about not getting anywhere with Curry. Now, Curry went on to have a decent career at North Carolina. He played seven seasons in the NFL at wide receiver, not quarterback. But Mike Vick, that's a different story. Welcome to Down and Distance podcast about the history of college football, part of ESPN's College Football 150, commemorating the 150th anniversary of the sport. I'm your host, Ivan Mazel. In today's episode, Michael Vick, a three-play guy. We will explore how one player changed the face of the game. You know who works hard? Rookies. Sure, they make mistakes, But no one's got more to prove, knowing each day is another opportunity to outwork them all and earn the respect they deserve. That's why, after 130 years, Carhartt still approaches each day with the passion and work ethic of a company that's 130 years young. Same hunger, same determination, same giant chip on the shoulder. And in the same way a rookie needs to work hard to earn the respect of their peers, Everything Carhartt makes has to keep earning the respect of the hardworking people who wear it. That's why Carhartt still works like a rookie, and why Carhartt will keep outworking them all for the next 130 years, too. Visit carhartt.com forward slash CFB to learn more and shop this season's hardest working gear. Nostalgia can be a powerful hallucinogen. It will distort images, soften memory, 
and make you see things that flat didn't happen. But as someone about to cover his 33rd season of National College football, I'm telling you, Michael Vick was different. Michael Vick had one of the greatest seasons that any college player ever had, especially one who didn't win a national championship. And unlike, say, Barry Sanders rewriting the record book, or Kyler Murray coming out of nowhere to win the Heisman Trophy, what made Vick's season great can't be measured by statistics. The beauty of Vick's 1999 season is that it transformed the game of college football in ways that no one foresaw or could have foreseen. Today, in the era of the RPO, the run-pass option, we take mobile quarterbacks for granted. We expect them. Coaches want guys who can run, who can throw, and who can throw on the run. Quarterbacks in the 1990s who could run and throw were anomalies. There were drop-back quarterbacks, and there were running quarterbacks. Everyone wanted drop-back quarterbacks. Only a handful of schools used offenses with running quarterbacks. Now, it just so happened that most drop-back quarterbacks were white, and a lot of running quarterbacks were black. So there weren't a lot of black quarterbacks. It wasn't overt discrimination. Well, maybe it was. But a lot of black quarterbacks were seen as runners as athletes in the weighted parlance of the day. Only as coaches began to employ offensive schemes with mobile quarterbacks did black players begin to cement a hold on the position. We no longer count black quarterbacks the way we did a generation ago, the way we still count black head coaches today. I think Michael Vick was the tipping point. I think his success as a runner and a passer at Virginia Tech and his subsequent success in the NFL flung open the door to the quarterback room wider than it had ever been opened before. What Vick accomplished in 1999 transcended mere stardom. If Michael Vick doesn't play the way he did in taking the Virginia Tech Hokies to the brink of the 1999 National Championship, then Virginia Tech is not in position to elbow its way into the Atlantic Coast Conference five years later. And if Vick doesn't play the way he did in 1999, the whispers about the inability of black men to play quarterback would have continued into the 21st century. From the 1950s through the 1980s, a handful of African-American quarterbacks excelled in the college game despite the stereotypes or the discrimination. But nothing really changed. Sly Kroom, the coach who broke the color barrier among SEC head coaches, will tell you that years after college football had integrated, Black players still had a difficult time getting a chance to play quarterback, to play center, or middle linebacker, the leadership positions on the football field. When Notre Dame and West Virginia played for the 1988 National Championship, each with a black quarterback, plenty of news stories commented on the game as a watershed moment in the sport. The next year, Andre Ware won the Heisman at Houston running a quick passing scheme that was a precursor of today's offenses. But the fact that we remember them for being good and for being black would tell you that nothing had really changed. Charlie Ward, another African-American, won the Heisman at Florida State in 1993 when Bobby Bowden became one of the first coaches to employ an up-tempo offense. Bowden started using it only in two-minute situations, which is why he called it the Kentucky Derby offense. You know, the Kentucky Derby, 
the greatest two minutes in sports? Ward threw for more than 3,000 yards and rushed for nearly 350 as he led the Seminoles to the national championship. Then there was Syracuse, one of the few programs to use quarterbacks who could run and pass. Don McPherson finished second in the 1987 Heisman. Marvin Graves and Donovan McNabb averaged almost nine wins a year from 1991 to 98. McPherson, Graves, and McNabb all are black. In fact, Syracuse wanted Mike Vick to replace McNabb. He and Vick bonded on Vick's recruiting visit north, and that made Hokie coach Frank Beamer very nervous. Bad enough that Vick might not play for Virginia Tech, but if Vick went to Syracuse, the Hokies would have to play against him in the Big East Conference. In the end, Vick decided to play close to home. He decided to play at Virginia Tech. And no one understood then just what that meant for Virginia Tech, a program on the outside looking in at the major powers of the sport. Vic's arrival at Virginia Tech could not have been timed better. Early in 1998, his freshman year, Virginia Tech's top two quarterbacks suffered injuries. The coaches and the players all understood the only thing keeping Vic back was inexperience. Now the Hokies needed him. And you know what? He didn't play. When Vic signed with Virginia Tech, Beamer had promised Vic's high school coach that Mike would redshirt as a freshman. His high school coach wanted to make sure that Vic didn't get thrown onto the field before he was mature enough to play and that he'd have enough time to adjust to college academics. With Vic in a redshirt, the Hokies finished 9-3 and three that year. The three losses were one-play losses pretty easy to imagine that Vic would have made a difference. Shane Beamer played on that team. He remembered two things about Mike Vic in 1998. One was how Vic would just flick his wrist and have the ball come out like a rocket. The other, Shane said, was standing on the sideline watching the second and third quarterback play and there, standing next to Shane, wearing a ball cap, was Mike Vic. But Frank Beamer kept his word. I wrote the scouting report of Virginia Tech in the 1999 Sports Illustrated College Football Preview issue. There were two items in the scouting report that I'm proud of, and one, maybe not. One was a quote from Virginia Tech running backs coach Billy Height, who was quite the character. Height said, as a way of comparing Vic to his mentor, Donovan McNabb, Syracuse is getting ready to find out how we felt the last four years. The other thing I was proud of was my prediction. If Vic helps the offense catch up with the defense, Virginia Tech will be looking at 10 wins this season. The item I'm not so proud of, we didn't really believe what I wrote. SI picked the Hokies 17th. The truth is, no one understood what the 6'1", 211-pound Vic was about to unleash on college football. He had an NFL running back size, speed, and quickness, and an NFL quarterback's arm. But he had no experience. And you know what? It didn't matter. In the season opener against James Madison, the first live competition Vic had faced in two years, he threw three touchdowns in his first four completions. Frank Beamer said this, 
I knew Michael would be a great quarterback, but I honestly didn't know he would have the effect on the team that he had. Where does the poise come from? The poise from a redshirt freshman quarterback. I don't know. I guess it's, it's just in my genes, and this is just the type of person I am. You know, I'm pretty a, a controlled person, and that's just the way I've been, you know, all my life. And I've never been a person who really get rowdy or, you know, not a really loud type of person. At least not to show it. Yeah. Virginia Tech scored at least 30 points in 10 of 11 regular season games, as many times as they had scored 30 in the previous two seasons combined. With Vic at quarterback, the Hokies won each of those 30-point games by at least two touchdowns. The exception was West Virginia, at West Virginia, one of the toughest places to play in the country. West Virginia rallied in the fourth quarter from 12 points down to take a 20-19 lead over Virginia Tech late in the game. The Hokies had the ball on their own 36-yard line with 36 seconds to play, no timeouts, and 30 yards to gain to get into field goal range. What happened next will be on a Virginia Tech highlight reel as long as Hokie fans watch highlights. Vic scrambled to his right and headed toward the Tech sideline. Beamer thought he was going to run out of bounds and stop the clock. More important, the West Virginia defender thought that Vic was going to run out of bounds and stop the clock. Instead, Vic accelerated upfield, tight roping down the sideline. By the time he jumped out of bounds, he had gained 28 yards to the Mountaineer 36. That may have been the biggest play of my coaching career, Beamer wrote in his memoir, and I am convinced no other player but Michael Vick could have made it. Virginia Tech won that game 22-20. Ball down, Shane swings the leg through. This kick is in the air. It is gone! It is gone! Shane Graham wins it for Virginia Tech. Michael Vick makes a miracle happen in Morgantown. The Hokies finished the season 11-0. And yet there was some suspense in the last weeks of the season as to whether an undefeated Virginia Tech would finish ahead of a one-loss Nebraska in the final BCS standings, the standings that would determine who would play undefeated Florida State for the national championship. That's how little ballast Virginia Tech had in the minds of college football experts just two decades ago. Beamer referred to his team as kind of the new kid on the block. When Beamer played at Virginia Tech in the late 60s, the Hokies played as many Southern Conference teams, little guys like William & Mary and Richmond, as they did ACC schools. When Beamer took over as head coach in 1987, The Hokies played a tougher schedule, but they weren't very good. It took Beamer seven seasons just to get them good enough to get a bowl bid. By the time that Vic signed with Virginia Tech, the Hokies had relinquished their independent status to join the new Big East Football Conference. Winning the Big East, as they did in 1995 and 1996, had gotten them the stature that comes with playing in the Sugar Bowl one year and the Orange Bowl the next. When the Big East formed, no one at Virginia Tech thought about getting into the ACC or that the Big East might be a stepping stone to the ACC. It was like a community theater star thinking about Broadway. It just wasn't possible. College football is a stratified society. In a game that picked its national champion by opinion for 80 years or so, 
You were what people thought of you. And for most of those 80 years, no one gave much thought to Virginia Tech. But in 1999, Tech did finish second and went to the Sugar Bowl to play the Seminoles on the fourth night of the new millennium. After the announcement of the Florida State-Virginia Tech matchup, Joe Drape, an astute college football correspondent for the New York Times, wrote that Virginia Tech would try to embed Hokey and Blacksburg into the college football lexicon. Virginia Tech had been playing football for 107 years, and the Hokies had yet to enter the college football lexicon. Midway through the second quarter of the Sugar Bowl, Florida State led Virginia Tech 28-7. The Hokies looked like wannabes unprepared for the big stage. They looked like they couldn't find their name in the lexicon. And then Michael Vick started being Michael Vick. Late in the first half, with the ball at the Hokies' 38, Vick took a shotgun snap. Florida State defensive end David Warren jumped offside, drawing a flag, but he also almost beat the snap back to the quarterback. Vick spun to his right away from Warren and kept moving right as he looked downfield. Two linebackers waited for him, boxing him in from the sideline. Now, Michael Vick loved to cut back, and the Florida State coaches knew that. They told the defense that Vick loved to cut back. It's one thing to tell a player that. It's another to try to stop it. I mean, we all know Steph Curry is going to shoot a three, right? Vick cut back, away from those two linebackers, and raced diagonally across the field. With the speed, he breaks free. Got an angle, Vick pushed out of bounds. He gained 43 yards, stepping out of bounds at the Florida State 19, and a few plays later, he scored. Option, Vic going to keep it for the end zone. Touchdown! Could be a long night with Michael Vick out there. Incredible. Virginia Tech trailed 28-14 at the half, and the Hokies dominated the third quarter. They came back and took the lead 29-28. But it was Florida State's turn to roar back. The Seminoles scored 18 points in the fourth quarter to win going away 46-29. Seminoles wide receiver Peter Warwick was named most outstanding player. He scored on a punt return and a spectacular diving catch. play I most remember from that Sugar Bowl is how Vic eluded a sack and used the entire field to run for 43 yards. If you measure the length and breadth of Bobby Bowden's coaching career, this victory might have been the high mark. The win capped the only undefeated untied season in Bowden's 47-year head coaching career. And yet, in the moment and 20 years later, what we think about when we think about that game is Michael Vick. On the morning after championship games, there's a press conference. All the entities that award a national title send a rep, trophy in tow, and after all the handshakes and stiff photographs, the coach goes over the game in a more relaxed manner. He takes a longer view of the victory and the meaning of the national championship. 
Riders have no deadline pressure. The coach usually has no sleep. It's a coronation of sorts. But on that morning after in New Orleans, everyone remained abuzz about Michael Vick. My friend Tony Barnhart at the SEC Network recalled milling around before that press conference and being approached by Grant Taff, the longtime Baylor coach, then the director of the American Football Coaches Association. Taff oozes his native Texas from every pore. I have been to five county fairs and seven sheep shearings, Taff told him, and I ain't never seen nothing like that. Throughout the history of college football, you know that every great moment has come from teams combining tireless preparation and hard work. Same for your business. From hotel chains to airlines, universities to healthcare facilities, retailers to local auto mechanics, more than one million businesses trust Centos to help them open their doors with confidence and get ready for the workday. College football has always been rooted in tradition. For example, the uniforms, the maize and blue, the crimson and cream. Centos has apparel programs to help your employees convey the right image, leading your business to the promised land. Great teams keep their goals top of mind. They don't waste time with distractions. It's your business. Focus on what you do best and leave the rest to Centos. Get Centos and get ready for the workday. Learn how Centos can help get your business ready at Centos.com. The following day, in the Atlanta Constitution, Barnhart and his colleagues used the words miracle and brilliance in describing Vic. Peter Warwick, the aforementioned most outstanding player, was described as the most explosive player not named Michael Vick. The response was the same in newspapers across the country, and Vick would be returning for another season as a redshirt sophomore. The 2000 season was supposed to be Michael Vick's transcendence, and for eight weeks, it was. Vick made an 82-yard run against Boston College in which he left just about every single eagle sprawled on the turf. Vick made a future pro defensive back named Lenny Walls do a complete 360 in the final 10 yards, and Walls never laid a hand on him. The Hokies started out 8-0. They climbed a second in the polls. But in that eighth win against Pitt, Vic sprained his ankle. It was the week before Virginia Tech would play number three Miami. Vic tried to go against the Hurricanes, but he wasn't very effective. Miami won the game handily. When Vic led Virginia Tech to a Gator Bowl victory over Clemson, that turned out to be his last college football game. He decided to turn pro because he wanted to buy his mom a house. So Vic didn't win a national championship. He didn't win a Heisman. He didn't make All-American, which, by the way, means he will never be elected to the College Football Hall of Fame. Think about that for a second. But after Vic declared his eligibility for the NFL draft, the Atlanta Falcons made him the first pick. As disappointed as Beamer was by Vic's decision to leave early, he understood. You can't do any better than be drafted first. Besides, the legacy that Vic left behind can be spelled in three letters. A-C-C.
first, Vic gave Virginia Tech legitimacy in the eyes of the high school stars who saw him play. Four play guys like corner D'Angelo Hall and tailback Kevin Jones. Dominant linemen like Jake Grove and Daryl Tapp. With players like those, the Hokies would win at least 10 games in 10 of the 12 seasons after Vic left. And in most of those seasons, the Hokies played in the ACC. The story of Virginia Tech's entry into the Atlantic Coast Conference is rife with political intrigue. The schools that wanted the ACC to expand needed Virginia's vote to get over the top. And Virginia Governor Mark Warner made it clear to UVA that the school could not vote for any deal that didn't include Virginia Tech as a member. But the ACC didn't blink at that condition. Some old school guys did. Bill Brill, the veteran columnist in Roanoke, just down the road from Virginia Tech, predicted that the Hokies wouldn't win an ACC championship in his lifetime. Six months later, in their first ACC season, the Hokies won their first ACC title. They won four in their first seven years in the conference, and Brill lived through every one of them. We don't think about Virginia Tech being in the ACC anymore. Unlike so many schools that conference hopped in the realignment era, the Hokies are a geographic fit in their new league. But more important, we don't think about the color of a quarterback's skin anymore. There comes a moment in every American sport where integration succeeds well enough that we take it for granted. We haven't thought about the color of NBA head coaches for years. And no one counts African-American quarterbacks in college football anymore. If I had to pinpoint when we stopped counting, I would say it was in the wake of Michael Vick's career at Virginia Tech. In the first 75 years of the Heisman Trophy, three black quarterbacks won the award. The nine years since have included five black quarterbacks, Cam Newton, Robert Griffin III, Jameis Winston, Lamar Jackson, and Kyler Murray. Or, put it another way, when Ryan Finley of North Carolina State made All-ACC in 2018, he was the first white quarterback to be named the best in the conference since Matt Ryan in 2007. That was 10 straight seasons in which the best quarterback in the ACC was black. In the ACC, a league that took its own sweet time to integrate. Michael Vick went on to an NFL career that had dramatic highs and crushing lows. He made millions of dollars. He went to prison for being cruel to dogs, one of the fastest ways to make a loving public reject you. And then Vic came back and proved himself again. He's retired from football. He's beloved at Virginia Tech. The acceptance of Virginia Tech as ACC-worthy and the acceptance of the black quarterback as a quarterback, no color description necessary, all dates to the same season and the same player. For Down and Distance, I'm Ivan Mazel. Down and Distance is part of ESPN's College Football 150, commemorating the 150th anniversary of the sport. If you like this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Down and Distance is produced by Nina Ernest, with help from Scott Siebers, Ryan Nantel, and Jody Avergan. Our engineer is Josh Macri. 
Special thanks to Alexandria Cooper and Gabe Bassane. The executive producer of ESPN College Football 150 is John Dahl. I'm Ivan Mazel. On our next episode, we'll dive into the story of the most controversial game in one of college football's greatest rivalries. And right now, big play for the Buckeyes and the Wolverines. And the officials have not put up their arms. The Buckeyes have touchdowns, says the linesman. The aftermath of the 1973 Ohio State-Michigan game. The tie that wasn't on the next Down and Distance.